0: Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce: The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind, but I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce: From Love-Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series. And the follow-on to that will be out in the spring. And that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap the mind-bending pull of the great pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained Thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators, and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com, and that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. I want to ask you about parental alienation. Do you think that parental alienation is something that narcissists engage in?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, I, I think it it's almost the last throw of the dice. And it, it's at the end of all the litigation, once everything has finished, the ability to use the children as a tool of manipulation or as a tool of alienation and as an extension of yourself is something that the narcissist does without even knowing that they're doing it. And, and they... They will sell it to themselves. They will sell it to others as well. I'm doing the right thing for the children. They don't want to go and see their mum. They don't want to go and see their dad. Or it it just doesn't work this weekend. And unless that's stopped quite early on, there's a risk that a status quo develops, and then it does become what the children understand to be their reality. And and that that's generally quite a harmful mm. uh, road down which to travel.
0: Looking at how that translates for their childhood it's more time spent with the narcissistic parent. They don't get to see the opposite sort of parent who hopefully is non-narcissistic doing all the things that one would hope uh, good parents would do and that narcissistic parents aren't able to do so you know validating who they are and listening to what they want out of life and encouraging them in their sort of dreams and their ambitions and you know having empathy and looking after them when they're ill and just being their cheerleaders to miss out on that because your narcissistic parent has alienated you from your healthy parents is just horrendous really and the the outcomes for those children i I dread to think really
1: absolutely and the risk then that child goes on to develop a form of narcissism because it's the way they've been brought up because it's what they've been exposed to and because it's normal for them
0: Mm -hmm. or of course the the opposite may be the case narcissism is so familiar to them it's what they expect in their personal relationships they may not become a narcissist themselves but they may go on to attract a lifetime of narcissistic abuse um, in that they attract partners who are narcissistic because it's their normal it actually they're subconsciously attracted to that type of uh, personality because it's the subconscious pull of the familiar.
2: It's what they see as their caregiver, and so actually, it's a, it's a safe place to be. If the person who's cared for them as a child is then replicated in adult life, it, fe- it feels right, it feels like the sort of partner that, that, that they would want to look for subconsciously.
1: Yes, and I, I think going back to the issue of alienation, this is something that the courts are slightly more alive to at the moment and uh, are, are looking at. And whereas previously it had been almost ignored, perhaps in the way that narcissism is at the moment, or it it was seen as being something that people just said. uh, Now there is more of a realisation and more of an understanding that uh, parents do alienate their children and that uh, alienation is a really serious and damaging thing for children. And it's, I suppose it's why we started having this conversation. I, I, I see alienation and narcissism if not walking hand in hand, they're certainly walking together.
0: Do you ever see it in the non-narcissistic parent who's trying to protect the child from the narcissistic parent?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Particularly if if the narcissistic parent is more of a a classic narcissist who has made life very difficult for their partner throughout the the time that they were together. The the normal, the non-narcissistic parent, I think, has a A a fairly well ingrained sense of, well, I want to protect my children from that. Yeah. But then that probably isn't alienation because alienation is generally seen as being uh, the withholding of a relationship for no reason at all. Yes. If you're withholding a relationship because you, you genuinely feel it's the right thing for the child and there's some evidence for that, then that isn't alienation.
0: But that's the problem, isn't it? It's it's finding that evidence, presenting that evidence when you've got this possibly grandiose, possibly charming, plausible narcissist on the other side that's, you know, charmed the Kafka's officer, et cetera, et cetera. How do you prove that? What I hear a lot um in these cases is is that the reports will say that the parent is alienating the child inadvertently because it's their own anxiety about the parent. If the parents behaved particularly badly, you know, if there's been stalking or threatening behaviour or whatever, it's the parents' anxiety rubbing off on the child. And so the child is not wanting to visit the other parent who is the narcissist. I mean, I don't know how you win, really.
1: No, well, I I think this is where Karen and I absolutely agree that the the court is almost the worst place to resolve all of these issues because they're they're far too subtle. They're far too complicated than than to expect any judge or any group of lawyers to to get to grips with and understand in the course of a day or two days or three days. These issues are Uh, lifelong. They're they're not something which you can easily pigeonhole or deal with in court. Yeah.
2: And I think that's why it's so important that the advisors of the person who is suffering from NPD are attuned to that because so often um, it calls to them to, in the right way, give the guidance that will put the case in the right arena. I mean, for example, if you need an adjudication, and um, what you really need is that the narcissist's lawyer to recognize that actually court in, in, the, in the traditional sense is just going to perpetuate problems for this family, particularly the children. And, you know, if, if doing their, the best job for their client is to put them into an adjudicative environment as quickly and efficiently as possible, then one might say arbitration is the obvious place to go. Um, And if they are then able to sell that um, so that you're in an arena where there is time and where you can choose your um, adjudicator who will have a proper opportunity to read through all of the papers and who won't have to deal with things under time pressure um, and give the case the the consideration that it deserves, that actually you might then have a hope of a a better outcome um, than might otherwise be achieved. But it's so dependent, I think, on not the victim's representatives understanding what's going on, but actually the, the narcissist's lawyers understanding it.
1: Yes, I agree. And um, it, it's sometimes quite difficult to move forwards with those kind of suggestions because that there is a tendency, and I, I don't know whether you find this as well, Karen, for, for the lawyers almost to reflect the 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 persona or the way their clients are behaving. So two parents who have been at it hammer and tongs over the years, the, the lawyers become unnecessarily conflictual between each other.
2: That's so true. I think that's really true. And I and I think that on the one hand, of course one has the obligation to follow instructions and to achieve the best outcome for one's client. That's our role. But I think that you can do that without perpetuating an abusive situation. But you're absolutely right, Nick. So often, especially in these cases, which are ongoing for some considerable time, it's a bit like gladiators, that the lawyers have sort of assumed the respective roles of their clients. And it's almost as though they've got some kind of personal investment in the outcome, which I'm sure they haven't. It's just that I think if you've listened to one side of something for long enough, and especially if you're drawn into the plausibility of it, which, again, is so dangerous if you're the lawyer for the narcissist, because I think that it can become very easy. Um, you know, these people can be quite scary in a funny sort of way. I think if you're a junior lawyer who, and don't forget, they're going to demonstrate exactly the same behaviours to their lawyer as they will to their spouse. So they'll be bullying there'll be all the charismatic stuff, there'll be the small amounts of criticism that nobody likes, that everybody wants to rectify. And, you know, before you know it, you've got your lawyer eating out of your hand and writing the letters that you tell them to write. Um, and, you know, that that's, you, know, it, it, you couldn't stoke a fire more readily than via that route. Um, and I think it's so important that the, the lawyer understand, not only from the, the point of view of their own, personal welfare and well-being, but also from the point of view of managing the matter in the best possible way, that they that they are aware of what they're dealing with. And, and of course that's not going to mean that they can't go against instructions. That's not their role at all. It, and it's not their role to suddenly become holier than thou and sort of take over um or, 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 or issue instructions as to how something should be dealt with. But you can give guidance very subtly um, and very carefully. Um, when you know what you're dealing with, um, to guide to the best possible arena without losing your obligations as as lawyer for one of the parties at all, I I think. I don't know whether, Nick, you agree with that.
1: I I do. I I also think you can choose not to write that four-page letter on a Monday morning grumbling about what happened over the weekend. I agree. You don't have to do that. You can act on your instructions without descending into the arena in that way and without uh, perpetuating the relationship which exists between the parties.
0: Sadly, it's abuse by proxy, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens, you know. Mm -hmm. The lawyer becomes abusive by proxy. And I mean, I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, I don't know how he or she did it, referring to their narcissistic partner, but they found the only narcissistic um, solicitor in Berkshire, Hertfordshire wherever they might be in the country. Um, I don't know how they did it. So I'm getting these dreadful letters. And I've even heard this about solicitors who I actually know, and I know they know about narcissism, and yet they still do this. They still write those letters and behave in that way that makes the other side. The non-narcissistic spouse actually believe that the narcissist lawyer is also themselves a narcissist. I mean, we need to sort this out, really. It's, it's unacceptable.
2: Career, doesn't that demonstrate just how good they are? Because as you rightly say, even for lawyers who do have an understanding of what they're dealing with, um, it, it's still with, with, with somebody who is is good enough at it, um, you can still get hooked in
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and still get fooled by that, that charismatic approach um, that just sucks you in to... Um, to becoming part of the game if
0: you like is it that they've been fooled or is it that they just can't object it's just too difficult to object and well at least they're making money the more conflict there is and the more letters they have to write obviously the more money they're going to make but on top of that it's a sort of you know I I can't fight this person because I mean they are really incredibly difficult to fight Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah um yeah it might well be that and perhaps there's a, a point when you're just worn down by it and you think well I'm doing what I'm I've been asked to do I'm dealing with this properly I'm following instructions as you say I'm going to make money out of it so you know what's there not to like you might think Um, except of course we know that the client in that category is the person who's going to quibble over fees might not pay fees might not provide money on account for counsel at the right time and so on and then make complaints etc afterwards exactly so putting yourself in exactly the same position as the spouse found themselves at the conclusion of this abusive cycle.
0: So it's very short-sighted, actually, isn't it, of those lawyers to behave in that way?
1: Oh. Well, it's, I think it's difficult to avoid. Because I, I think one of three things happen. Either lawyers get swept along by the whole process and the, the charismatic client who rings up saying, well, these things were dreadful and something must be done. Or alternatively, lawyers tend to feel sorry for their clients and think, well, this is dreadful. And I'd, I'd like to try and make it better for them, because ultimately that's why we're all family lawyers. We're, we are trying to make a situation better for families rather than uh, just see them as, as the source of our income. And, and more often than either of those, I think it's just the easy option. So you, you don't have the time or the mental space to have the long conversation with your client to explain why this letter isn't going to achieve anything. So the easy option is, do you know what? I'll just write it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, that that's where the training for lawyers, I think, is so important to to be able to say to your client, agree okay. with with a degree of uh, confidence that. You're you're right in your judgment. No, I'm I'm not going to do this because it, it won't help. It won't help you and it won't help the case generally.
0: If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com.
2: And I think it's so important not to be afraid to say that.
0: Yeah. To your client, yeah.
2: Yeah. And and you know, we all, all work under time pressure and actually to get that point out so that then you're not in a position to craft the four page letter that's going to cause so much angst and difficulty that you've just made it clear that it, it won't help. The worst that's going to happen is the narcissist is going to find somebody who will. So they'll disinstruct you, which may be a blessing all around, or the letter won't go out, which will be beneficial to the family. So it's it's not a bad position to be in from the lawyer's perspective, I think.
0: Well, I think there's probably an easy way of dealing with this if the solicitor understood that their client was narcissistic and that's why they were asking them to write these kind of unreasonable letters, etc. If they understood that, they could simply say, well, this will show you in a bad light to a judge and therefore, and, you know, I'm trying to work for you, not against you. A narcissist is going to lap that up. Really? It's, it's very simple, really, but they do need to understand what they're dealing with um, in order to, to exercise that.
1: Yes, I agree. And um, w- one piece of advice I've often given uh, clients who are in that space is to say, keep a really careful diary, make a note of everything. We don't want to deal with it bit by bit in real time, but we'll deal with it all at the end of the proceedings or when we're drafting a statement and we can include all of this information then. And I think that can sometimes make make the client feel better that they're being listened to and that they've got a a source for their, their own narcissism, even if that That is only their own diary um, and and can diffuse things in that moment and avoid the, the four page letter, which then leads to two weeks of correspondence and probably the child not seeing the other parent that weekend.
0: I've got a question for you, Nick, about relocation cases, because I know that you specialise in those. I'm thinking of a a recent case that I've dealt with where there was a narcissistic party and the non-narcissist wanted to relocate internationally. Very abusive narcissistic party indeed. And so it was really difficult to know what to do because... In order, it seemed, to be able to sort of leave the country, that particular client needed to make out that everything was okay with the narcissistic partner and that, you know, they were cooperatively co-parenting and there were no issues whatsoever because it would have stood against that particular client in terms of her kind of relocation case to to say, well, there are issues here. What happens in those situations?
1: They are just about the most difficult cases that I advise in, Supriya, because the case that you have to mount in order best to present a relocation application is often completely contrary to the case that your client would want to mount domestically. Exactly, yes. It's very difficult to be able to say, if I am allowed to relocate, then look, things between us are fine. We've had some bumps in the road, but we'll be able to make things work because I will promote a relationship and I'll enable... Uh, the other parent to come and visit as frequently as they want. And, and actually, that's exactly the opposite of what your client probably feels. Because, again, although they're not allowed to say it, it may well be that one of the reasons they're relocating is to get away from the other parent.
0: Yeah. It's so, so difficult. And I mean, they're put in all sorts of dreadful situations. I mean, they have to have family therapy. And so, you know, you get into this awful kind of triangulation, um, you know, where you've got to sort of sit in a room with the narcissist and have therapy when you know it can do no good anyway. It's abusive in itself. So it just everything compounds and gets worse and worse and worse. But they have to do it in order to look like they're sort of cooperating and being inclusive and wanting to sort of be better parents with the narcissistic person. It's, It's so, so
1: difficult it it is and it feeds into the narcissist's feeling of specialness doesn't it that they're they're the center of all of this
0: yeah well the power and the omnipotence and you know they really are in control of this
1: one of the reasons and again this is very anecdotal but one of the reasons why i think it's becoming more and more difficult to succeed in relocation applications because one one of the one of the things that judges are much more alive to is to enable this contact to work following the relocation and then if you put forward a pattern of contact which looks like it's going to be in the best interests of the child it's so easy for the other person's lawyer simply to say well that that could work here you don't need to move to enable all of this to happen and it's difficult to present particularly dealing with a narcissist it's difficult to present all of those arrangements as being in the best interests of the child Mm. when deep down that they're they're mainly related to the issues between the parents rather than the children
0: and in fact it would be in the best interest of the child with a narcissistic parent who is by definition abusive Absolutely. although it's generally covert psychological abuse it's not obvious to see if you don't know what you're dealing with I mean it's it's yeah it's so so difficult isn't it what's the best way forward with all of this that's a very big question I know (laughs)
1: Well, for me, I think the best way forward is a process of education. But for lawyers, that's going to take years Um, because the the first thing is to make family lawyers aware that narcissism is real. And it isn't just the person who puts a dozen pictures of uh, a weekend of themselves or their children on on Instagram, but that it is a genuine recognized condition for which there is no real cure, only management. And it, and it impacts the children. And it, it, it is that process of just understanding that the, the condition exists that, that will start the ball rolling. I, I think the best way of doing that is is probably post-qualification because things taught at law school and bar school are too easily forgotten about or, or are too easily just sort of frozen in aspic. And you think, well, that's how things were when I qualified, but life has moved on. I, I think one of the problems we face with an issue like narcissism is that the branch of family lawyers who deal with, for example, financial proceedings would think, well, this only really applies to children proceedings, so I don't need to know about that. And it doesn't. I think that it's just
2: as prevalent in the financial arena, simply because of the the lack of desire for closure. So um, you can find that the simplest case takes on a life of its own, in terms of duration and complexity when which doesn't actually exist.
0: I think there's more to it than that as well. I think that looking at narcissistic behaviours, for example, the sense of entitlement that's absolutely key to to how a narcissist behaves. That totally feeds into the financial proceedings, financial arrangements, because they feel that they're entitled to everything and that their partner, their former partner, is entitled to nothing. It's called splitting. When their partner falls off their pedestal, they can only see them as black and white. They see people and they see themselves as all good or all bad. There are no shades of grey. They don't see people as a mix of good and bad traits or, you know, desirable and slightly undesirable traits. They only see them as all good or all bad. And they see themselves in that way as well. So, of course, that's going to feed into the financial issues in divorce. If they're seeing their partner is all bad, which they are, then they're just going to say, well, you deserve nothing um, and I deserve all of it. And that's, I think, what underlies the the real issues that happen in, in financial proceedings.
2: And you've got the desire to win, which is, you know, all encompassing.
0: Yeah. And of course, to punish the the spouse who has sort of brought this upon them, these feelings of rejection, narcissists are dreadful at rejection and, you know, feelings of abandonment, all of that feeds in to them having to feel their own sort of true feelings of low self-esteem and unworthiness. So they wish to punish the person that's brought that upon them. And what better way to do that than through the children and financially?
1: There's also, from from a legal point of view, I think, the risk that in financial proceedings, the end is much more likely to be the end because the capital award is made once and that's it. So an adverse outcome in financial proceedings can be life changing in a way which within children proceedings, there is more of an opportunity to review as the children's needs change and as as they grow older.
0: They can mess around as well, though, if there's maintenance um, involved. There's great opportunity there for the narcissist to to muck about, stop working or hide their income, or say they're going to retire early and change the the maintenance portion of of the order.
1: Yes. And I I think it's all of this highlights why these are issues that, that all family lawyers ought to be aware of. They're not just issues for lawyers dealing with children or public law children or private law children, Th- these are personality issues which cut across all areas of the work that we do. There is a, a programme of trying to revisit the whole of the private law children um, litigation. Uh, Andrew, the president, has uh, has set out some roadmaps for how he wants to deal with this over the next two or three years. And this that may be the opportunity to start plugging away at these issues and to m- make the judiciary and the legal profession, both branches of the legal profession, much more aware that that narcissism does exist and does cut across almost every area of work that we do. I find that the more I talk to you, the more I listen to your podcasts, the more I educate myself, the the better I can become at, at doing my job properly and trying to find the right solutions in these, in these really difficult cases. So it, it is just about empowering the legal profession, empowering lawyers and judges to, to have the information, to be in a better position, to, to, to get the, to the right solutions. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much for chatting to us about this. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.